Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Our sermon text this morning begins in verse 13. Matthew 3, 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your Son, Emmanuel. God with us. Thank you that we can be united with him by faith. God, thank you for the way that you change our hearts, that you are changing the community of this church family to be conformed to the image of your son. We know that that's your will for all those who are called to be your children. And we just want to thank you for sending your spirit so that Christ might live in our hearts by faith. God, I pray that your word would be understood by your people today, that it would be loved, that it would be obeyed, and that we would know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, because therein is eternal life. Father, we also pause to pray for our nation today, knowing that we are on the threshold of a very important decision. We pray for our Supreme Court justices right now, for their souls, for their relationship with you. I pray that they would come to know that they are your creatures created in your image to bear the image of your Son, and I pray that they would find in your word, that Christ is slain for them. And by faith, I pray that they would put themselves in your hands and come to know you if they don't already. And Lord, I pray that you would guide them to make a wise decision and that you would rescue our land from the tyranny of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that we would be a nation by your mercy, not because we deserve it, but by your mercy, where the least of these is valued and loved and cared for and treasured. And that we would be a nation that is governed by just laws 
And I pray that those just laws would actually affect the way that we think and relate to one another. And that you would do your will and glorify your name in the place where we live. God, make us faithful citizens, uh, first of all, of your kingdom. And as sojourners in this world of the nation in which we live, make us faithful, Father. God, I pray that you'd open up this text to us and that you would work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were this week to take a day trip to the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, you could see a painting, a very small painting, uh, but you could see a painting known as the Adoration of the Magi, Painted by a student of the 16th century Italian master, Jacopo Bassano. I think that's how you say his name. Uh, the painting depicts a familiar Christmas scene. You've got Mary flanked by a faithful Joseph, and she is pre presenting the infant Jesus to three uh, Parthian noblemen who bow and offer their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Actually, this particular subject is sort of a, a frequent flyer. It's a very common image in Renaissance painting. There are dozens of examples of the Adoration of the Magi among famous painters like Leonardo da Vinci or Rembrandt, as well as lesser-known masters. And each one of them are painted in such a way as to communicate a message and to communicate a value system and, and to, to show in the way that Jesus and Mary and the wise men and Joseph and maybe some of the animals are portrayed in that painting, uh, the, in their posture and the way that they're presented, some truth. Now, the example in the museum in Fort Worth is not a case in point of this, but in many of these interpretations of the Adoration of the Magi, Mary does something kind of strange. It's a still picture, obviously, but in some of them you can see that she's actually removed some of the swaddling clothes, and she is presenting baby Jesus to the wise men, and he's completely naked. Now, and, and, of course, the wise men, they have these expressions of amazement, and it's tempting for us to just think, man, Renaissance painters are really just weird people. And, Jake, to be honest, you are really weird for bringing this up. <laughs> but if you think about it in terms of the theological meaning of what is presented in these paintings... It actually makes a lot of sense. What is it that these painters imagine captured the wonder of the wise men? Not just that a royal baby had been born. That would have been significant, worth a trip perhaps. But no, it's much more than that. Not even that the Son of God had descended from heaven into the world of men. As incredible as that would be, it's more even than that. No, what was amazing to them was that the eternal word from the Father, as John calls him, the only begotten Son of God, had become from the top of his head to the tip of his toes in every way a human being, a man. Not the Son of God with the mere appearance of a man. Not a sort of divine human hybrid, sort of like an ancient Superman sent from an alien planet. No, nothing like that. No, completely, fully God and completely and fully man. 
Have you ever really thought about that? Have you considered that? Have you, like the Magi, like these wise men in the paintings, been uh, consumed with that idea? This is a, a sort of thing. It's a truth that we cannot wrap our heads around. We can't even really know how God makes this possible. I mean, how can you be 100% man and 100% God? That's 200%. That doesn't even make sense. We even talked about this in Awana on Wednesday night, and one of the kids said, um, that's 200%. 200% is not possible. <laughs> And, and, and it's true. You know, when you're dealing with God, <laughs> this should be obvious to us. When you're dealing with God, there are going to be some things about him that go beyond the scope of our understanding because he's God. And the scripture doesn't expound for us all the details of how this takes place, but what it does expound for us is why it takes place. Why did God do this? Why did the Son of God become Jesus of Nazareth? Why did the Word become flesh? I mean, can't God do anything he wants? Couldn't he have saved us without sending his son into the world as a human being, without all the suffering, without all the, the misery? He, he could have sent an angel to do this. He could have just snapped his fingers, you know, so to speak, and saved humanity. Why did the word become flesh? And over the next three Sundays, we're going to explore three answers to that question. In fact, the title of today's sermon is the first answer to our question. Why did the word become flesh? To live for us. To live for us. Now, that's a very simple phrase, a very short answer, but it is pregnant with meaning, and it's one of those truths that connects with just about every section of Scripture, as you will see in just a moment, and of course, it has wide implications for us today. Now, I'm going to warn you, this is going to be a theologically dense message, but you can do it. Don't tell me, oh, don't, that's too much for me. I can't handle that level. You know, keep it simple for me. Listen, you guys are telling me all the time, all the, all the time about the things that you do for a living. And, you know, you know all sorts of stuff. You are smart. Why do you know, why is it that you know, you know, the right time to put that kind of fertilizer down and what kind of nitrogen and phosphorus and all that stuff? Why is it that you know exactly the temperature and the humidity of the oven that needs to be on so that you can bake the bread in just that certain way? Why, why do you know that stuff? Because it's your business to know it, right? And so your family needs you. That's how you bring home the bacon, right? And what I'm asking you to do today is to make it your business to understand the Bible. Make it your business, because your family needs you to make this your business just as much as they need it to be your business for you to go out and do your work and, and earn a paycheck, okay? So stay with me. You can do it. What I'm saying is, uh, there are going to be practical applications, but you're going to make some of these on your own later on. It's better for you to understand the big picture and then make the application than for me to just do all that work for you like I normally would. And so normally, I kind of put it down on the ground level. We have the three-point outline. They all start with the same letter. We're not really going to do that today. You're just going to have to track with what I'm saying, okay? Uh, so with that being said, let's just look at our text for a moment. John is baptizing people in the Jordan River. That is an important detail in our text. We'll come back to in just a moment. And then Jesus shows up. And, and John has been talking about Jesus, this man, this person who is going to come. And he's telling people, you know, there's a guy who's coming after me, and he's way greater than I am, and he's going to baptize people with the Spirit and with fire. And then Jesus shows up, and John's thinking, 
Now's the time. He is going to do this. He's going he's to come and he's going to bless the humble and he's going to destroy the wicked. And, and now's the time. Here's Jesus. And then Jesus does something that John doesn't expect. He walks down into the water, the Jordan River, and it's, he makes it clear that he wants John to baptize him. And John is so confused. Why would it, Jesus, this is a baptism of repentance from sin. You don't need to repent from sin. Why are you coming to me to be baptized? In fact, I'd really like it if you would baptize me. And then Jesus gives this explanation in verse 15. Look what he says. He says, let it be so for now, uh, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now that statement, just by itself, it might seem a little cryptic to you. But it's actually, uh, it, it's, it, it might seem a little hard to, to understand, but it shows one of the reasons why the moment of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River is sort of like this load-bearing beam on which the entire structure of Scripture's story rests. It really is. It's kind of like a, a, a great uh, convergence of streams and rivers and creeks into one place, converging into this great body of water. And in order, in, in order to understand why that's the case, we need to kind of go back to the beginning and do a flyover of some of the major milestones of Scripture and then come back to our text because it's going to show us just how many threads run through this particular event. So go back with me. This is the only place I'm going to ask you to turn to, okay? I know you like to get, put your... Put your arms back and kind of sit and relax. I'm going to ask you to turn to one more passage. Go with me to Genesis chapter 1. Really easy to find. I could have asked you to go to Philemon or, you know, Malachi or something like that. But just go to Genesis chapter 1 with me and look with me at, at chapter 1, verse 26. I forgot to mark it in my Bible too, so I've got to race you there. Okay, look at verse 26 in which... Uh, Moses describes the creation of human beings. We're told, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice what God does. He's doing something different from everything else that's come before in chapter 1. He is creating a being that's actually going to represent him in the world, sort of as his regions on the earth. And, and those beings, human beings, are actually made in the image of God. And so what God has done is he's created human beings in order to, to represent him in the earth. This is why he made them. He wants them to serve as his regents and, and as his, uh, sort of as his obedient children. And then look at verse 28. Look at what God does. What does he do? He blessed them. But this is what's really interesting. How did God bless the man and the woman? How, in verse 28, does he bless them? He actually gives them a command. He, sa he blessed them, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing uh, that, that moves on the earth. In other words, uh, God designed us in this way that blessing involves obedience to the design that God has made us to fulfill. God created creatures like human beings so that obedience 
constitutes a state of blessing. And, and by the way, there's a flip side to that. Obedience constitutes blessing. We want to walk in the blessing of God. We want to live uh, the way that we were designed to live. That involves obeying his good commands. But on the other hand, if you go back to, uh, if, if you go forward, I should say, to chapter 2, uh, they need to obey these commands because if they don't, then they're going to experience death. Uh, he says in chapter 2, verse 15, or I'm sorry, verse 16, uh, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so notice what God does. He creates this arrangement with human beings, Adam and Eve, in the very beginning. And he says, listen, I'm going to bless you and you obey. And on the other hand, if you don't, you experience a curse because then you're not living the way that I created you to live. And so you've got God having a relationship with human beings and there's a blessing and a curse on either side. What kind of a relationship is this? Life or death conditional upon obedience? Is this like a business contract that God is, is setting up with human beings? No, it's deeper than that. Uh, in fact, uh, we're told in all the way later in the Bible, in Hosea chapter 6, uh, Hosea calls this relationship a covenant. He says that Adam and God actually related to one another in a covenant. And what that means basically is this. Adam lived in a covenant relationship with God. Essentially, here's what God is after when he creates human beings. He's after something like an obedient son. God wants human beings to relate to him as his obedient children. And so he enters into an arrangement with them in which obedience constitutes blessing and fellowship and rightness with him. And when we walk in that obedience, we experience the blessing of God. This is something that God designed and God desires. He wants an obedient son. And, of course, we know what happens next. Adam fails to meet these demands. He breaks the command. The serpent comes along in Genesis chapter 3. He tempts Eve to break the commands that God has given. He tempts her to, to eat the fruit that, that was forbidden. And then Eve gives that fruit to Adam. He disobeys and he sins and the result is a curse. And now Adam and Eve are going to die. And not only that, but everyone who is born into their family shares in this predicament. So they fail the test. Now think about this. Imagine you or I were in charge. We were the ones that set up this arrangement. What would happen? That would be it. We would just take the workbench and clear it off. Say, let's start over with a new project, new humans. But God's not like that. See, God's not like us. God is kind and merciful. God had a purpose for Adam and Eve. That was his plan. And because God is who he is, he's not satisfied just to wipe them off the face of the earth and start over. That would be abhorrent to him, and he had a greater plan. So in the midst of this curse, God introduces some merciful tension into the dynamic between human beings and, and the divine. And in Genesis 3.15, he makes a promise to Eve, and he says, one day, your offspring, or the, the, the offspring of the woman, is actually going to right this ship. He is going to crush Satan under his feet, and the implication is that the curse brought about by their disobedience is going to be reversed. And then you go through the rest of Scripture, and that tension 
the tension between the judgment of God and the mercy of God gets more and more acute. It gets tighter and tighter. It gets more uh, intense until finally the earth is so filled with violence and the thoughts of man's heart are evil to the core. And God's decided, you know what, I've had enough. And so I'm going to send a flood over the entire earth and everybody is going to be destroyed. And what God is actually doing in the flood he actually kind of takes the entire earth back to the way it was before God created everything else. And it's, it's like God is saying, you know what? It's time for a do-over. I'm going to start over again. But, but God doesn't just leave it like that. He actually rescues one family, doesn't he? Noah is saved and his sons and their wives. And, and so Noah, he calls out one family to pass through the judgment of the flood and to experience salvation because he wants to keep his promise. And then that promise it passes down from one generation to the next, and it goes on from Noah to his children, and then finally it reaches Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob's children, and then Jacob's children become this nation of Israel. Do you see how the progress of, of the Bible is going forward? And then God hears their pleas for mercy while they're enslaved in Egypt, and he starts to act on their behalf. And what happens in the book of Exodus is sort of like a repeat of the book of Genesis. Like, he's going back over some of the same material. Pharaoh and his armies, they've rebelled against God, and what happens? God rescues Israel, he brings them to the edge of the Red Sea, and they, just like Noah, they pass through the flood safe. And, and the Egyptians and their armies are destroyed in the judgment of God. And it's like God is doing this all over again. Why does it happen again? Because again, God desires an obedient son to serve as his representative on the earth. In fact, he even says that in Exodus chapter 4. He says, you know what? Israel is my firstborn son. And he brings him to Mount Sinai and sort of republishes the same arrangement that he, said with, that he had with Adam. Just like Adam and Eve, you've got to obey. That constitutes blessing. And if you don't obey, you receive a curse. And the same thing happens among the children of Israel. He tells them in Exodus chapter 19, he says, If you will obey my voice indeed, then you'll be my special precious possession. You'll be my treasure. You'll be my obedient son. And I'm going to walk with you and have fellowship with you. You'll be like a kingdom of priests. In other words, you'll be what I created Adam to be. You'll be the true humans. And then just like Adam, they fail the test. And by the time they get out of the wilderness, God has had to destroy all of them. Like thousands and thousands and thousands of people. They all failed. And there's only two that survived, Caleb and Joshua. And Joshua ends up taking Moses' place as the leader of the next generation of God's people. And before long, they find themselves in exactly the same place again. Where does Joshua lead them? Right to the banks of a great body of water. The Jordan River overflowing its banks. And Joshua, just like it happened at the Red Sea, once again, the Israelites are saved from that flood and they're walked across on dry land to the other side. And, and Joshua leads them to conquer the wicked and to take possession of the land. And, and it seems for a moment as if Israel with Joshua at the helm just might be God's obedient son. But then Joshua dies. He's not the one. And then very quickly, just decades, Israel goes way downhill. And before long, they're almost wiped off the face of the earth by civil war and by their neighbors. And then, and then God brings 
someone like David into the picture. And maybe David will be the obedient son, but then David sins and he fails and he can't be the guy. And then his son Solomon comes on the scene and he's building all these wonderful buildings and God's blessing the children of Israel and expanding their influence in the world. Maybe Solomon's the guy. Maybe he's the obedient son, but then Solomon fails. And then the next son and the next, and all along the way the disobedience mounts and the tension gets even tighter and tighter and tighter until finally Israel is just a shadow of what it was. And for centuries, God is silent. They're languishing under the oppressive foreign regime. The religious leaders are hypocrites. The political leaders are powerless. And it would seem as though God's intention to rule the world in covenant with an obedient son who would bear his image and be his regents in the earth is going to be absolutely impossible. We all suffer under Adam's curse. We all fall far short of the covenant's righteous demands. But then, friends, it all changes in a single night. Because what do you, you get to Matthew chapter 1, and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and overshadows the womb of a young girl, a virgin. And now you've got a human being, a baby, conceived in her womb, and he is not an heir of Adam. He doesn't suffer from Adam's curse, and it's kind of like he's a new Adam, a second Adam, just like we sung about a a few minutes ago. And then in chapter 2, the wise men come to Judea, and they ask, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And and we're reminded of what Matthew had said in chapter 1, like this is a, a person who is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, and it's like, here's a new David, not just a new Adam, but a new David. And then in chapter 3, He arrives at the Jordan River and he symbolically leads the people of God across the Jordan just like Joshua did and it's like he's a new Joshua. And then you get to chapter 4 and he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted and tested by the devil, the same place where Israel failed the test. And he doesn't fail the test. He passes the test and he's tempted, but he doesn't sin. And it's like he's like the new Israel, like the fulfillment of what God wanted Israel to be. And then in chapter five, he comes and he says, I'm going to start teaching you. And he walks right up on top of a mountain, just like Moses. And he begins to teach. And he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And he starts to tell people the the ethics and the rules of the new covenant. And it's like we got a new Moses too. Only this time, he's not going to disobey. He's not going to fall. He's not going to fail. He's not going to be insufficient to the task. He's going to take all those covenant demands and he's going to fulfill every last one of them as the obedient son. And so he says to John, back in our text, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You baptize me so that I can identify with them and be their representative. And he goes down into the water and he's pulled up again and then from heaven you can hear the Father say, finally, after all these centuries, I created human beings to be my obedient sons, to bear my image perfectly, to subdue the earth and represent me in the world, and all of them failed. All of them fell short, and now this is it. This is my beloved son. This is the one with whom I am well pleased, finally. Amen. 
Why did the Word become flesh? Because you and I need so much more than forgiveness. We need, we need so much more than a clean slate. If all we get is a clean slate, forgiveness from sin, God comes and he says, I'm going to clear the slate. We would be in the same place as Adam and Eve were back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Only worse, because their environment was ideal. Ours isn't. No, we, we need more than that. We need a new Adam who doesn't fail. We need someone to be God's obedient son, to fulfill the demands of the covenant so that we might not be crushed under its weight. Why did, why did the word become flesh? To live for us, to be obedient for us, to fulfill the covenant for us. Theologians refer to this reality as Christ's active obedience. That's what they call it, his active obedience. Uh, next week, we'll talk about his passive obedience, but his active obedience is this idea. Christ came into the world to die for sinners. Yes, that's true, but it's incomplete. We need someone to take our punishment away. We need someone to take our place and bear the wrath of God for us. But we also need someone to keep the covenant for us. We also need someone to fulfill God's demands for us because we can't do it on our own. But God in his wisdom, he's taking care of this. He sent Jesus, the second Adam, to pass the test where the first Adam failed to earn the approval of the Father, not just as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man, as a human being. So that just like the Father shouted from heaven, this is my beloved Son, so he looks out at all those who are united with Jesus Christ, all those who are in Christ, and he says, this is my beloved Son, this is my beloved Son, this is my beloved Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now that is a massive truth. It's worth pondering, isn't it? It's worth just resting in, but it also has some very practical impact for every one of us. So let me just list out a few. First of all, know this. There is no way that you can fulfill God's demands on your own. There's no way. And that's not because those demands are too difficult for you. That's not it. No, there's nothing about being a human. You can't say, well, I'm only human. Jesus was human. That's not the problem. The problem is not because they're beyond the ability of a human being. The reason you can't fulfill those demands is because your nature has been twisted and corrupted by sin. So you can't fix that on your own. It's very common nowadays. I can't even fathom saying something like this, but it's very common nowadays to, to hear certain popular preachers and Christian thought leaders talk about how, hey, you're enough. You're enough. You. Just be you. You know why they say that? It's because you want to hear it. And it helps them gather a crowd and make a lot of money. But friends, (laughs) it's not true. The scriptures call that itching ears. You ever read that part of the Bible? I look for someone to tell me things that make me feel better about myself. You're enough. Well, friends, the reason that they say that is because uh, they want to make a a lot of money off of you, gather a crowd. But listen, God created you for a reason. And and I'm going to tell you right now, you're not enough on your own. 
you will never fulfill the purpose that God has for your life on your own. Even if God wiped the slate clean today and all the guilt and all the shame and all the baggage from your past went away, I'm telling you, you would just fall right back in. You can't do it on your own. You need someone to fulfill the covenant for you. You need someone to be your second Adam. You need Jesus. And if you will humble yourself, you know why we say, oh, I love that. I'm enough. You know why we say that? Pride. We're proud. But if you'll humble yourself and let go of this prideful desire to be enough all on your own and just say to Jesus, thank you for obeying the Father for me, then you can know that God sees you in Christ as his obedient child with whom he is well pleased. So if you're here and and you're listening to me and you're not a believer in Jesus in your heart, then I implore you to stop looking for the answer in here and start looking for the answer in him. Just trust him. Secondly, if you're a believer, you need to know, you need to have confidence that when God looks at you, he isn't disappointed or displeased. When he looks at you, he sees his obedient child. That's who you are, not yourself, but in Christ. You're justified. That doesn't mean just as if I'd never sinned. You ever heard that before? I'm justified, just as if I'd never sinned. No, it's more than that. Justified means this, just as if I had fully obeyed the Father's commands and fulfilled the covenant. I know it doesn't really sound as neat. It's not as catchy. (laughs) But that's what it means. In other words, you don't need to obey God in order for him to think you're legit. You don't need to prove something to him. You don't need to get his attention through your obedient life. Christ obeyed in your place. And so now you live out of that reality rather than out of uncertainty. It's sort of like this. Think back to a time. Do you remember a time when you started a new job? And what happens? You go into that new job, and all these people are there. They've been there longer than you. And from your perspective, you can't tell if it's somebody that's been there for a month or somebody that's been there for a decade or 20 years And they all look at you, no matter what you did before in your life, they look at you and they think, this guy knows nothing, (laughs) you know? And you can feel the stares, and and you've got to prove yourself. And if you show up even one minute late that first week of your new job, you are done, you know? Your reputation is just shot. And that's the way we kind of think about God sometimes. You know, like if I mess up even just one little bit, God's just waiting for me to mess up. He's waiting for me to fail. But no, guys, relating to God, relating to our Father in Jesus Christ is much more like someone who's been at that job for 20 or 30 or 40 years. Someone who is, is living out of an identity and a reputation of, hey, this guy knows what he's doing, or this guy belongs. What's the difference? When you're new, you have a clean slate, but you have zero credibility because you haven't proven yourself much better to be a five-year veteran or a 10-year veteran with a track record of excellence than to be a newbie. And here's what I'm telling you. Christ gives you his track record of excellence so that when you stand before God, you're not the newbie with just the clean slate that you know you're going to mess up. You've got the track record of Christ. And you come to church, I mean, sometimes... (laughs) We think of God like that tyrannical boss. He's trying to just squeeze a lot more out of us. 
We come to church and we think, okay, God, I've given you my talents. I've given you my time, like as much as I possibly can. I've given you some of my treasure. Now you're, you're wanting to take even more of my money for a building program or for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering or for whatever it is. Like you just take from me. But that is not reality. What God's actually done is he's given us everything. And because Jesus obeyed for us, because Jesus lived for us, fulfilling the covenant, we can live before God like that veteran. We can have confidence knowing that we're, we're obeying out of an identity that's already been established by Jesus Christ instead of by, by an identity that's not established yet. Those are two different types of obedience. And we've got the former rather than the latter. In other words, let's just make it really simple. You don't have to mope around so much. You can be happy. You can be joyful. Because of who you are. God isn't following you around with a belt waiting to whack you on the butt when you mess up. You're not his problem child. You are his obedient child. He doesn't ask you to obey because you're on probation. He asks you to obey because he has a good plan for you and that, that obedience is your blessing. So just know Christ obeyed for you. Live like it. Worship like it. Rejoice in it. Rest in the fact that the Word became flesh so that He might live for us. Would you pray with me now? Let's pray. Father, thank You for giving us this confidence knowing that we haven't just been forgiven and cleared of our guilt, but we've been given the righteousness of Christ in exchange. What a wonderful truth. And God, it pains me to know that there may be people within the sound of my voice who haven't bought into this yet, haven't given themselves to Jesus. And I pray that today would be the day where they bow the knee, humble themselves, and by faith look to Jesus and trust in him alone for salvation.